0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a fun conversation with the editor-in-chief of Curbed, Kelsey Keith. Before taking this job at Curbed, she wrote for Dwell and Architizer, but... Kelsey's writing career began in the late 2000s after she had finished studying art and was thinking about studying architecture in graduate school when she found herself in the middle of the New York media world. And it was at that time that she really began cobbling together a freelance writing career. And in this episode, Kelsey and I talk about that early career and what the media landscape was like then. We talk about being Curb's first editor-in-chief and her uh, sort of editorial vision for the site. And we talk about their recently published story package, The United States of Texas and California, which uh, at the time of this conversation was about a week, was coming out in about a week, but is now out. And you should really spend some time with it. It's a really brilliant and smart uh, package of stories. I'm a big fan of Curbed and what they've been doing lately. And it's been a great source of design writing uh, over the last couple of years. So I was really excited to talk to Kelsey about how she thinks about it and where she sees the site going and kind of her plans for for Curb going forward. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter that has additional content and episode previews. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Kelsey Keith. Uh, are writing about design or Mm design-related subjects, what interest came first? Were you first interested in kind of design, architecture, the built world, or were you more interested in kind of writing, journalism, editing? How did that happen? Uh,
1: I was definitely, this is definitely spurred by my interest in design and architecture, um, more specifically art and architecture. Mm. Um, When I was much younger, I, like, you know, like a lot of people, actually, um, was interested in the idea of being an architect um, without yet understanding the (laughs) (laughs) all-nighters and the inherent masochism in the field. (laughs) Um, But um, no, I was just always interested in um, built environment, I think, and design in general. Uh, I actually studied art history in college. Oh, okay. And so I initially thought that I would go into the art world. Um,
0: what what were you thinking? Like what what was your interest at the time, or or what kind of jobs were you thinking you'd have?
1: I, th- I thought I would probably work in a museum or gallery. Okay. Um. And so I went to college at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. Okay. And there is a pretty vibrant art scene there. Um, there's a Fine Arts Museum where I worked, and I also worked in the education department there. Um, When I was in college, uh, I also, I did a lot of things. I was an assistant to um, a painter who worked in the old master's tradition. Oh, nice. So I like mixed goat skin glue. Oh, that's fun. Smells revolting. Um, But she's a talent. I mean, it was really amazing to see that sort of thing at work. Um, Took studio arts classes, um, worked with some other independent curators and curated some shows myself um or assisted in them rather I wouldn't say full curation but you know yeah this sort of in the mix um did like a thesis project that was curating an oh, okay exhibition. Um and so I did a lot of that in college. Um I would say though my probably my most memorable course at the College of Charleston I also did the sort of year abroad thing and went to Paris and yeah. studied art more art history there which was incredible. Um, my most memorable professor in college was one of my architectural history professors. Mm -hmm. Um, I took a lot of architectural history classes in school, um, which was also just something I was personally interested in. Even though I was studying art and thought I would go into it, I just always really liked architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was this professor named Robert Russell and he was a sort of lecturer um, where he would go well over his allotted course time, but people were just glued to their seats Wrapped with attention, they're just so interesting, yeah. It was great, and like that's you know, where I, (laughs) you know, first read the like Virginia McAllister book and Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. uh, Shacks and Shanties. Like, this whole vernacular study was like something that we spent a lot of time on, and um, anyway, that really resonated. Um, and so after school. Um, I also studied arts management, which is more like the nonprofit oh, side right, of the art right. world. Um, so I did that. So I think I, I mean, I just sort of had a vague inclination that I would go into like nonprofit arts or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was sort of quickly disillusioned from that track um, because the internships available at the time, I think people have since changed the, this idea of fellowship, but at the time they were typically one in New York anyway one-year-long, unpaid, full-time. Right, right. And my parents were like, oh, that's so cute. Um, how are you going to, like, live? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, of course, they're very supportive, but they wanted me to be realistic about yeah. being able to make a living, um, which I appreciate. And so I actually, as my first job out of college, I worked in, of all things, a luxury PR firm. Okay. Um, but it was, it's, was operated by a woman who she herself was a liberal arts graduate. Um, she went to college with my mother at Mount Holyoke. and so basically she like only wanted to hire people who were good at writing, you know, had mm-hmm. this sort of sensibility about the world or like well studied or whatever. Um, so I just I did that for about a year and a half and what was super, basically like I think any job, even if it's not the job that you want, or have any inclination to continue doing. Yeah. there's should be, like, I prefer to go into things with a curious mind. Yeah, yeah. And the benefit of that job was that I learned so much about New York, specifically New York-centric media.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah.
1: In that job over a year and a half. And I got to know a lot of um, editors and writers and, and people like that. And, you know, given that... The vibe at this particular like small boutique firm was not super pr anyway. Yeah. I feel like the people that I met there, I don't know, I, I, I just connected with them as people and really appreciated their work and it was really interesting for me to just like learn how titles and mastheads worked and, and how people get stories and what they're looking for and stuff like that.
0: Was that something, were you interested, did you know you were interested in that stuff or had you done much no. writing before that or like,
1: no, was I mean, that No, I all wrote new? papers. Right. I think, I will say the thing about art history, and this is true knowing a lot of people now in New York who don't do art history stuff but who studied it, um, there is sort of an aptitude for, first of all, like memorizing lots of small details and then... Mm. making connections between Mm -hmm. those things in larger ways um our history is very tied to social history cultural history um political history and so you can't it doesn't exist in a vacuum you know Mm -hmm. it's very Mm -hmm. much of the era in which it was produced and so i think to me that gave me a good grounding just for i don't know movements, styles, eras, that sort of thing. And how did
0: that all come together for you of like your art history background and then you're working in this firm and you're kind of meeting writers and editors? Did you realize that, you know, this interest, this long interest in architecture, this kind of history that you're studying could actually come together and be...
1: Not quite yet. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) okay. No, um, I quit that job to apply to grad school because I was going to go, I was Planning to go to grad school for architecture.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I decided that's what to I was going to do. To be
0: an architect to at be this an architect. point? Yeah, oh, interesting.
1: Um, but right around the time that I was applying, um, the financial crash happened. Okay, I it had was, a like, feeling this is where fall. that was going, yeah. And I know, and there's no, there's no right or wrong way. Uh, I think a lot of people thought, well, the The job market isn't great, so I should use this time to get an education. And I think that's very noble and works for a lot of people. I, however, am very pragmatic in my approach. And I thought, wow, the job market, even five years down the road for young architects, is going to be terrible. And this is going to be really expensive. And I don't know if I'll be able to pay that money back. So I'm just going to wait. Like, I'll just, I'll just wait and see. And that was good because that's not ultimately the reason I never went to architecture school. is right. because I right. assessed and realized that I, I, I love architects and I love architecture, but I am probably not personally suited to be a practitioner. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's fine. Um, it's,
0: it's good that you were able to know that about yourself, at that age, at that moment, because that could have been...
1: Well, I wasn't. I mean, I, I didn't have that realization when I decided not to fly. When you made that apply. decision, okay. It was more the, the market environment, shall we say. Right, um, right, And then it sort of, the realization came to me later, and it was just like a, a forcing mechanism, I guess, to not go. Um, and in the end, I think that was like the why, yeah. better thing anyway. Um, so at that point, I was working in a restaurant. Um, I... Was ended up making about $20,000 the next year. <laughs> My parents were very concerned about me.
0: Um, and you were, you were in New York yeah, at this time, York. too. Okay. I was in
1: New York. Um, but I lived in a six-floor walk up in the East Village with a bathtub and a kitchen. Okay. I did not have a Metro card. I walked to work. Uh, the restaurant was on West 10th Street, so I just walked across 10th to go to work. I ate one free family meal a day. <laughs> And did free yoga because a friend of mine who was also very (laughs) poor, like, was doing the front desk stuff in exchange for free classes. So um, that year, my world was very small. Um, But I, on the side, started writing. Okay. Uh, Because basically, the people, some of the people that I had met at the time when I was in the PR firm, like, I was still in touch with them, still friends with them, and they knew that I was interested in, in art and architecture and design and stuff. And so they started giving me freelance assignments. Okay. So just because they were looking for somebody in that topic. Yeah. Um, and there were a few people that like really were just like, give it a shot. Um, which is amazing. One of those people, uh, was Pavio Rosati who oh, yeah. started daily candy. Yeah. Um, one of them is Tim, Yu. he was an editor at cool hunting at the time. Okay. Um, so shout out to both of them. Um, they just gave me freelance assignments like early on, even without like a ton of clips or whatever. I mean, this is this was also an era when um, the world, even the digital world, did seem a lot smaller.
0: Yeah. So this is this is late two thousands at this point. Yeah. This okay. is like
1: yeah. when would this have been? Two thousand nine.
0: Okay. Yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah, I mean that's a very different online very different vibe than it is
1: now and it's like this was the era of like when tumblr had just been starting Mm -hmm. out (laughs) and like people that i knew and were like regularly around like the the founder of tumblr was like someone that we kind of knew and like um you know it's the same thing with like the gawker all the gawker people or whatever like tech startups you know it was it was small like everybody (laughs) knew each other and um so it was kind of right place, right time, I think, in, in, in some regards. Um, but I started doing more design reporting, and I can't remember, at some point, I got connected with the people at ID Magazine, Okay. which then closed. The clo-
0: yeah, I remember when that closed. I can't
1: remember when it closed. Maybe. I think years. it was
0: 2009, 2010. I think it was
1: 2010, because I would have started writing for them can't remember exactly, 2008, yeah, yeah, It was like somewhere in there. Um, and Jesse Ashlock was the editor at the time. Okay. But a lot of people that I know now were involved with ID previously.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Jill Singer, Monica Kimsaroff, oh, yeah. Julie Lasky, all yeah. the ID people. And then there was this crew of freelance writers that I was also like tight with because we all wrote for ID. So that would be like, oh geez, um, like... Ian Vollner, Eva Hagberg, William Boswick, Michael Silverberg, um, just like this crew, Jim Gaddy, like people who, um, we were just all doing the grind at the same time and ID was very much a locus for all those people and I, that's how I started meeting a lot of designers in New York. That's how I started meeting a lot of, uh, not architects so much, but writers and designers and design people. Mm -hmm. Um, And is this
0: like feeling like a, like this question, I don't mean for this question to sound so simplistic, but did this feel like it could be a job now or that this was a career or like when did.
1: Yeah. I think that a lot of the freelancing was scattershot as freelancing can tend to be, especially when you're young and you do not know how to like maintain a business for yourself. Like I was not good at it. Um, but that was sort of when it felt like I was starting to, like, get a crew, in it, right, so to speak. Right, um, I don't know what you mean. So a good example of that is um, William and I were tapped by our friends who had started this thing called American Design Club. Okay, yeah. Um, and we were tapped to basically write this, like, independent magazine that was supposed to be for American Design Club. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Lin of Studio Lin designed it. Oh, yeah. We published this was so long ago, but we had, like, we had this whole thing. We had, like, gifts to put online. We had, like, the magazine. Like, I remember the RBW dudes already knew Glenn Ligon because he had started, like, oh. collecting their lights really early uh-huh. on. And so, like, <laughs> we we interviewed him, like, did a home mm-hmm. feature for the magazine, like, wrote all this stuff. I don't know if I still have a copy of that thing, but it was just, it was fun because at the time it was, like, all of our, like, young, mm-hmm. starting to be designer friends mm-hmm. were at the very beginning mm-hmm. of their careers. Yeah. And then all of us as writers, like, met most of those people I mentioned had already been writing longer than I had, so I was sort of, like, the newbie on the scene, but, like, you know, we were all sort of establishing ourselves. And, yeah, it was just, it was, you could sort of, there was this energy yeah. that everybody was, yeah. like, really at the nascent points in their career, and, like... Um, we were coming up together, and that was that was fun, and there was just a lot of energy, and that was sort of the time where the like quote unquote Brooklyn design was like really big, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Brooklyn has, like a I don't know marketing campaign. Um, so all of that's really funny, and of course most of these most of these folks like are fairly well established now, and like yeah. <laughs> which is amazing to see. Um,
0: yeah, I, mean, I, I don't
1: know if I could dig up that magazine. I don't know if we still have it,
0: it's always funny. For me, in these conversations of kind of realizing how much overlap there is between kind of all of these people starting out, you know, in that kind of like late 2000s, early 2010, when all of this was really starting to kind of start to take a shape, how much kind of crossover and intersection there was.
1: Yeah, and I think the real point there is that it's not even like, oh, this happened once and will never happen again. This happens over and over in time. And I think you just really have to, like, be observant of the world around you, like, hustle, look for opportunities, and just, like, be, be aware of, of what's around you and, like, appreciate it and know yeah. that there is something there. And also, part of that is natural. is just, like, um, identifying people around you who are doing cool things and being excited and energized by yeah. that. And I think it sort of buoys the whole group.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I. That... It wasn't
1: intentional at, at <laughs> all, but it's just, like, that. that was that was how it happened yeah and I know what you mean
0: because that that is right when I was finishing undergrad Mm -hmm. and I remember like being very excited about it all because I was like getting ready to graduate I was going to like work as a designer there was all this kind of energy Mm -hmm. and then I graduated and started working and I felt like it had all just kind of like started to fall apart this is like Twitter starts taking off kind of these like blogs were not updating as much as we're and I I felt like I had, like, missed a really important moment, and I, I like you just said, I constantly remind myself that, like, this is this kind of cycle, and these yeah. things kind of come and go. I don't want to, um... So,
1: I mean, I would say, right. and this can sort of seg into the next yeah. thing, but but what's interesting, I think, about my career is that I've always kept, and this is true to this day, I've always kept one foot in the design world and one foot in the media world. Yeah. Um, and so I was, even then, I was kind of, Operating in both spheres. And so I think that my career is a product of, of that. Um, yeah, that's The first, interesting. like when during this freelancing time, like ID was very influential to me from the design side of things and knowing people in that sphere. Um, but at the same time, I had gotten this um, sort of permalance gig, I don't even know, it was like part time or something, um, gig with this publication that was like big at the time called FlavorWire. Oh, and, that sounds familiar. And I worked for this woman named Caroline Stanley, who is one of the more incredible people that I know. Great editor. Um, she's from the South as well. And we just always had like kindred, we were always kind of kindred spirits. She was hired by Elizabeth Spires. Okay. So again, very right. small world. Right. Like a Gawker alum. Yeah. She was like a consultant for a Flavor Pill to launch this thing called Flavor Wire, which is basically just like a cultural compendium um, with like a really smart, funny tone. Yeah. So Caroline also just totally took a chance on me. I don't know what she saw in me but um, because I was very young, but also just hungry, I guess, and willing to do the work for probably not very much pay. Um, Anyway, so I had some title there, and I was writing a lot about all sorts of different things, all all culture, Mm -hmm. but with a focus on design and architecture because she had nobody else to write about that. Um, And there was this one... This is so retro now. um, There was this one... Post I did that went completely viral, that got the attention of somebody who then hired me for my next job. And that post was this is so I can't even believe I'm telling you this. Um, I'm kind of nervous. So. It was well, so Lady Gaga was like had just broken on the scene and was like okay. wearing these totally like you know
0: right right
1: avant garde yeah, stage like like outfits, the meat dress like, and meat dresses, yeah. and just like weird shit that most people didn't see on like Pretty Little Pop Stars. Um, and so I did something comparing her stage outfits to architecture and design. And it was, like, <laughs> a David Chipperfield stadium in Rome. And, like, um, toward Björn wow. like, Delft contemporary version of Delft's pottery. Like, it was, oh, it was also sort of weird stuff. Yeah. Um, but things that I saw visually. And, like, nobody had done this before, I guess. Anyway, it was just, like... I think it sort of obviously people were into Lady Gaga. There's a celebrity thing, but also maybe it like anchored it so people could sort of yeah, understand some of the references. Amazing. Anyway, um, that I'm pretty sure that that post alone is what. Um, in fact, I know this is true, so he won't mind me saying this. But um, grabbed the attention of uh, Mark Kushner when he was starting Arcitizer. Okay. And so he needed an editor, um, and. I again, I know like every other person who interviewed yep. for that job because I knew them all, um, because of our sort of like set. Um, yeah. But he hired me to start this thing, and there at the time it was like Arc Daily and dizine were already around, um, but Arc Daily was basically just I don't I don't really remember what shape it was then. Probably much the same. In any case, the idea was to start a sort of culturally relevant
0: right. funny yeah. voicey
1: thing about architecture. Um, and it had to be written or had to be managed by somebody who like loved architecture, but wasn't like so self serious that like everything's going to yeah. be dry and boring. Right. Because right. Mark himself, if you know him, is like super gregarious and like sociable and like, you know, he's, he's just really outgoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and while well, I don't know, I'm certainly not as outgoing as Mark, I definitely, I think, well, I hope, I don't know, write that way or, or think that people want to do that stuff. And, um, yeah, so I was the founding editor there.
0: Okay, so you were editing. What, what does that mean to be the editing editor? Editing and writing. I was okay.
1: hiring people as writers and staff okay. members for okay. Architizer because at the time we actually had a staff. I don't know what's really happening there now, but... Um, Um, so I had hired people and I was running the site, writing, and then doing like lots of, we have lots of events and stuff. So we did like this whole thing at GSAP where we like got to travel to Tokyo and London and Berlin to like go to this conference that was like all about construction. I mean, there was some, there was definitely some academic aspects to it. Yeah. Um, but Great time to be working on the internet. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, like, media is not the job for you if you want to get paid handsomely. Uh I, like, look back sometimes at my (laughs) my salaries and I'm, like, depressed by it. Um, But that job had so many perks in that, like, I was getting to meet so many people, interview people, travel, um you know, sort of like learn from these people who had started this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a startup that had different aspects to the business. Um, And we shared the office with, with Mark and Matthias's studio. Um, So, you know, yeah, it was, it was great. It was like a big learning experience. And basically for that job, I sort of set some goals for myself. Like I want to reach this size. I want to get to this sort of prominence. And then once I hit that and grow it I'm okay to go on to the next thing okay so that's what I did
0: I want to I'm going to jump ahead because I want sure. I do want to talk about curb stuff and mm. I, I don't mean to like no, no, no. go through every yeah, every yeah. stage of your career and, yeah. and you had a, a, a time at dwell between yeah. that also um, I've talked to a bunch of dwell people so I think we can just yeah jump to curb if that's okay because
1: oh I would um, just say the, the only interesting thing to know there is that like I actually put in a stint as editor of Curb New York.
0: Right, I saw that after
1: Arquitetor for a very brief period. It was five months. Okay. And um, my the person who hired me, uh, who started Curbed, um, he very it was very savvy about how media works, and he understood that like getting poached by Dwell was like something that was important to me personally and would be better suited to my yeah, talents. Yeah. Um, so he was very gracious about it and understood why I would take that job. I will say the thing about being in sort of a blogging atmosphere where at the time the quota was like literally 12 posts per person per day, which right. is insanity. <laughs> yeah, It's actually really good because it totally took the preciousness out of my writing. I didn't stress mm. about writing anymore after that because oh, it's just wrote. You just have to throw it up there. You just have to do it. People are going to read it. The public is going to see it. You have to write it. It may not be perfect, but like from that, it you don't stress about it too much. Yeah, and so, yeah, like, yeah. that was probably the big takeaway of that short time. Like oh, it's good, It's good to get that experience. And so, I don't know, kids these days, like, just don't have the quotas <laughs> that they used to. Well, I mean, <laughs> but, it's
0: interesting, though, because then when you came back to Curved, basically, yeah. as so, editor-in-chief yeah. and the first editor-in-chief. Yeah. And so I, I guess I have two questions that okay. may or may not be related, but they kind of connect to what you were just talking about, is that I don't think of – I. I'll try to ask this in a clear way. One, hired as editor-in-chief and as the first editor-in-chief, what did that mean and what were the site's ambitions to even need an editor-in-chief? And then two, which maybe is a sub-question but might not be, is I don't really even think of Curbed as a quote-unquote blog anymore and that idea of blogging doesn't seem like that even fits and so I'm kind of interested in that transition and maybe like what that looked like or
1: well so you kind of arrived at the answer yourself they hired me because they wanted somebody to transition curved from its past and then present as like a sort of loose federation of Okay. Okay. To something right. that is an outlet with a point of view and a purpose and, a, you know, an overarching strategy for how to yeah. execute that new purpose. Um, and right. it was interesting to me, and I, I, we don't have to talk about Dwell too much, um, another place where I just learned an immense amount. I was given a ton of responsibility. Um print, digital, and, um, live programming and just learned a lot. And like, I wouldn't have been prepped to do this job without that one. Um, however, I will say that working in any shelter magazine after a while definitely feels like, can feel like writing about design in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, and I talked
0: to Allison Area recently and uh-huh. she said something, she almost used really? the exact same phrase or something yeah. very similar to that.
1: Um, but we've probably even talked about it. Like the <laughs> yeah. Dwell DNA is very strong. Yeah, I know yeah, pretty yeah. Pretty I've pretty noticed every that. every person who has worked there even when I wasn't there. Um, so while I think that was like the best case scenario of that kind of magazine, mm-hmm. at the point when I started working there, it was squarely in the shelter category. yeah. Um, obviously Carrie had launched it with, with a sort of different Mm -hmm. perspective, um, which I respect and admire, which is why I work with Carrie to this day. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's so great. So, um, anyway, so, so for me, the chance, what Curved provided, which is unique, is the chance to do what I have always wanted to do in my career. Uh, which is to unpack the value of architecture and design in an accessible way so that the public feels like they have buy-in about why it's important. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting about that sort of thesis of of my career, I guess, um, is that it doesn't actually need to be media, but media is a really good platform Uh by which to like sort of carry out that thesis. Um, In any case, Curbed was such an amazing opportunity because it's so rare that somebody calls you up and is like, hey, like I haven't even been really involved in this thing that I created and founded and I think it has the opportunity to do something entirely different. Mm -hmm. I bet you have an idea about what that could be. Tell me about it. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And then eventually, well, it sounds like you're the person who should do this. Do you want to work here? Yeah. um, and, And so like, again, back to this idea that a lot of other things sort of talk about design in a vacuum. Um, what I saw from the outset that had never been... Uh, nobody had really identified about Curbed, um, which seemed like a missed opportunity to me, was was the fact that like it is really the sort of thing that applies to people who give a shit about where they live mm-hmm. and this idea of mm-hmm. home that exists at different scales. So it's like an individual oh, residence. A street, a neighborhood, a city, and then larger and larger to these more like universal principles of architecture, urbanism, or whatever.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting.
1: And so the very format of Curved, which is this network where it has all these city sites, Um, at the time they did have a national site, but it was entirely different than what it is now. Um, It just, to me, sort of crystallized like the the future possibility of Curbed, like crystallized in this very Mm -hmm. natural way. And I was so excited to come here and, um, and to do something with it.
0: You you started answering my next question. This is kind of like, I guess, really like the big question of kind of even why I wanted to talk to you because I do think that what makes Curbed interesting is, well, maybe I shouldn't even set it up this way. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Let me think the best way to ask this. I guess my question is about audience and i'm I'm really mm-hmm. curious how much do you know kind of who is reading the mm-hmm. site and how much of that you know how do you find that balance between the people like you just talked about that are just kind of really interested in where they live and this kind of idea of living yeah. you know kind of together with industry people
1: right well so
0: that was a weird way to ask that question, but do you know what I'm trying to sort get of? Let me
1: just back up a little bit. Though. Okay. So the first thing that I did when I started here, because it had just never really gotten the attention, it had no goals set for it, and was sort of like left to like wither on the vine a little bit, was this um, this national site. It was had mm. previously been called Curb National. Oh yeah. And like it didn't, it didn't have, it was sort of I think started as like an insidery media coverage thing, as opposed to something with a perspective of its own. Um, which was different from the individual city sites. So, like, right. New York had a very specific purview at the right, time right, right. on development news, neighborhood news, um, real estate stuff, and you know, it had, it had it had it had over the years. To be fair, like covered a lot of architecture, just like in sort of a <laughs> different uh, viewpoint, with a different viewpoint. Um, so the city sites were kind of like. I knew that they would need more investment and more work eventually, but, like, they were kind of just, like, doing their thing. And Mm -hmm. so that was fine for the meantime. Um, But I knew that I could do a lot with a centralized site, which is to, like, hire people who are really good reporters, hire people with really high taste level um, to sort of elevate the content, start doing more features, Um, just things that are generally interesting, ramp up the features program to be, like, a lot more zeitgeisty. Right. Um, And you know, sort of start to compete with magazines who are covering these things, architecture and design, right. but in a way that's much more, again, culturally attuned and, like, interesting, entertaining, but also smart and beautiful and well-photographed. And I was like, I know that we can do this. And that was yeah. that was quite easy. I hired some amazing people out of the gate um, and obviously could not do any of this without them. Yeah. Uh, the first person that I brought on, first two people, one was Assad Sirkat, who's my deputy oh, editor yeah. now. Um, he had been, I. He was the podcast yes, host, right? He, he okay, yeah. our podcast. So, Assad was referred to me um, by someone from his previous job at Architectural Digest. Okay. He's like, he's a real talent. He's very young, but he's promising you would love him. Um, and sure enough, I did love him, and he is super talented. He was like, you are the person to do this. So I had hired him as the editor of the the sort of flagship, now flagship.com. And then Patrick Sisson, who had written for me as a freelancer at Dwell, was moving to New York, and he's an amazing reporter um, and has a lot of experience in the field. So I brought him on um, and then kept one other person from that site and then just hired all new people. Okay. Um, So the idea was basically to start really building out the centralized resources of Curb so that eventually we could extend these centralized resources such as a really smart engagement editor or social team, um, a photo, photo Mm -hmm. editor so that we could expand those sort of experts in their various fields, um, to help the city sites then level up. But we really had to like do something with the centralized part, Mm -hmm. um, so that there would, you know, so that there would be like a pull for the umbrella that then like goes over the whole thing. So, Um, that was the, that was the approach and the strategy and that worked really well. So I would say that was like the first year. Um, then we relaunched with a new design and, uh, opened Curbed Austin. Um, and then thereafter we were able to start working and executing on the rest of the editorial strategy, which is this idea that like local and national actually feed into each other. Right. Yeah. And one can't really exist without the other. And what I mean by that is... Our sites that are city-focused, like Curved LA, Curb LA has a huge value to people who live in Los Angeles and read it for news about their city. Um, so one thing that we did there was to start to expand the, the coverage area a bit. Um, so at this point, you know, because there are a lot of issues that affect people in the places that they live that are mm-hmm. not straightforward real estate, but mm-hmm. exist, but or that affect, like, the built environment, and more specifically, the people who live in that built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me it was always the natural route for curb to take um, because it's about people and the places that they live. Yeah. Um, So we expanded the topic area. um, And then from that, like, you know, there is that local value that's very inherent to Los Angeles residences. Um, At the same time, there are a lot of people who were interested in LA who don't just live in LA. Right. Um, So there's that sort of second ring of audience, um, who would just sort of read about Los Angeles, even though they don't live there. Mm -hmm. And then there's the third ring, which is our national audience, which cares about these greater issues, but they often need specificity in order to care about them. And so it's much more effective to tell the story, for example, of displacement in a recently gentrified neighborhood. If you're talking about somewhere very specific, in Atlanta Mm -hmm. versus, oh, hand-wringing gentrification is bad. Oh, gentrification. You know, like that doesn't (laughs) do anything for people. And in fact, I think it's almost dangerous because it's too generalized. Gentrification as a word is actually something that we're careful about using because typically it's sort of a catch-all for many different aspects of a changing city. Right. And so we do try to be really careful about just saying what we mean when we're covering things like that. And I think that because we have people... In 14 cities around the US, um, we are able to tell the stories of what's actually happening on the ground in those places and then therefore make connections between those places around yeah. the issues. Yeah. And so, you know, we have an editor in Curb Seattle who can talk to somebody in Austin and find out, oh, that's happening in Austin. There's this thing that in Seattle that's sort of similar, like maybe I should write about that too.
0: Okay. So they're talking to
1: each other, uh, we're able to circulate important local stories to a much larger national audience, and then likewise, we're able to commit, um, you know, sort of these flagship resources around features and things like that to specific places. Yeah. So, going back to Curbed LA, um, this year we did both... uh, desert guide, which was like a regional guide. Oh, right. Yeah, I saw It around Los yeah. Angeles. Um, and then we also launched our um, beginner's guide series, which is basically like a moving to city right, guide. Right, right. Um, so both of those went up in LA this year. And then this week, we just launched our um, San Francisco beginner's guide. So okay. everything you need to know if you're considering a move to San Francisco.
0: Um, I'm curious if you think about, you know, it's interesting to kind of think about the, the city specific versus... the the, like national or the kind of central site, but then also like these guides versus kind of reporting. Do you think about stories different? Like, do you divide between this is journalism, this is criticism, like this is an opinion piece? Like, Do you know, like, do you approach those differently or how do those fit together or are they all just kind
1: of? I think we see them all, all of those things, which we do publish, I think we see them all as providing a service to the reader Mm -hmm. in different ways. Um, Criticism, you need somebody with experience and a really, really informed perspective sometimes to make judgments on things, Um, often in pursuit of making things better, ultimately. We don't really. Like, we all see criticism as, like, existing because we love the things that we're talking about and we want them to be as good as possible. Yeah. Um, And sometimes they're not and they need to be called out. Um, You know, likewise, a lot of our reporting recently has been sort of in this guise of, like, inequality in the architecture field and how that, you know, informs the things that are built that are ultimately meant to serve as the public, like... That sort of reporting is certainly a service to the public. In order to t- you know to talk about it and yeah. highlight it as a real issue that needs to be fixed, um, I think even our more sort of beautiful, uh, like shelter type coverage, like we do house calls for example, which mm-hmm. are home tours of people in the beautiful houses. Oh right, right. Um, but those are also in a way service because we are. Really very careful to talk about the people and the places that they live, why they live there, what they did, who they are. Like, it's not just this sort of surface facade mm-hmm. of people living in their homes. It's it's much realer, and it's also presenting a much wider, honestly, cross-section of homeowners right. than you would often see right. in shelter magazines. And that's important, too. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Um, yeah.
1: We... Yeah, so I would say that pretty much everything we do is very service-oriented in one way or another. And another way of talking about that is just that we are really big on providing context. Like, yeah, even when covering a renovation on Curb, it's never going to be just like, before and after, voila. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's like a really process-oriented eight-part series, <laughs> like, following somebody as they, like, Decide that's a good how point. to save yeah. on square footage
0: of tile. Yeah, and I guess I guess probably the majority of your audience has a kind of base knowledge or a certain... You know, yeah. I, I doubt many people are coming to a lot of these stories completely blind without any kind of right. context, which I guess kind of help, helps but, a
1: little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we do have a pretty engaged audience as well. Like, people tend to come back. They are really, like, loyalists and... Mm-hmm. Um, And anybody who talks, I mean, I don't think they're just flattering me. I mean, I think people are genuinely, like, really, really engaged by it. Yeah. Um, But part of that is understanding that, like, there's always some service you can provide to a reader. And whether it's just providing contextual detail or um, giving them a perspective on something they hadn't considered before. Or giving them access to an expert who can talk ably about their topic. Or even just giving them incredible photography that we commissioned for something i mean the, all yeah, of that is yeah. like in service to the reader um but in a way that's like smart and we certainly have a tone and like there are standards that we set up for ourselves that we hew to very closely
0: i'm really curious what are the subjects that you're really interested in right now or you know either kind of personally kind of in this field or or you could even kind of talk about it at a curbed level of what Mm. are the things you want the site covering more or kind of what's next or what are the kind of big issues and ideas you're thinking about?
1: Sure. So, um, that's a good segue to tell you about this project that we are publishing, um, on October 24th. Um, this has been in the works for about a year and it's something that I've had in mind that I've wanted to do for quite a while. Um, it's called the United States of Texas and California and it's, essentially using these two states as national bellwethers for specific topics that affect people in the places that they live. Mm -hmm. And those topics that we've identified are um, economy, urban policy, transportation, and immigration. And we did a lot of digging and researching and assigning writers to help us figure out where we were going to talk about these. But the idea is that we have isolated four towns in California and four towns in Texas Mm -hmm. where these issues are very prevalent locally. Mm. Um, so the story of immigration in California is about this place called El Cajon outside of San Diego. And um, it is, has mainly um, an Iraqi population. Oh, okay. So Iraqi um, immigrants who had come here starting, you know, after the Gulf War, basically. Mm-hmm. And at this point, like, it's sort of an interesting look at how you know, a town of immigrants or refugees, uh, might eventually like assimilate into something Mm -hmm. that people wouldn't even necessarily know is like, um, but at the same time, of course, it has a character that is like very, uh, you know, obvious to anyone who's attuned. Um, so that's an interesting one. And then, you know, the immigration story in Texas is actually, I'm an artist who is doing a, an art project along the border around Brownsville. So we had sent okay. a reporter to Brownsville to get a sense of what the border is really, what those border towns are like as a place, yeah. not just this uh, sort of amorphous idea of a border. Um, so That's a looking, great idea. So basically, like, looking at this topic from two different perspectives, one in Texas and one in California, but because it's curved, it's always based in a physical place and the people who live there. yeah. Um, so, I love that so we're rolling that out and I think like this is the this is really the distillation of what we're about mm-hmm. people and places and stuff that they care about um, but with you know around these topic matters that are are really pretty pressing and urgent to mm-hmm. people right now especially you know leading up to a midterm for example things like that yeah and and Texas and California are just really interesting obviously um, because they both have, extraordinarily significant GDPs themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, the leadership usually takes quite a different tack um, in those states, but it's sort of interesting to think about, for example, um, that Texas will probably build its high-speed rail before California does, which is like not something oh, people would assume. Yeah, no. There's a lot of green energy happening in Texas, not yeah, because it's green, that. but because it is an opportunity for a free market enterprise huh. and people can make a lot of money off of it.
0: That's interesting.
1: But there we go. Um, huh. So, I you know, part of this is also to like, you know, sort of break people's preconceived notions and hope that people in Texas read about California and people in California read about Texas and hope that people nationally are like, what's this about? Yeah. Um, so, of course, with that project, like that's also the opportunity to do something which is very important to me, which is to really art direct it and um, spend a lot of time thinking about photography and design, and reading experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, having all of these things go along with it. So we have this, like, sort of capsule newsletter uh, with individual interviews around these topics. It's, like, leading up to the publication of this packaging. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, you know, really flexing our, like, creative um, muscles around storytelling um, and art and place in a way that, like, I don't think anybody else can do, really.
0: That That actually was something that I was really curious about with Curbed, I don't mean for this to get kind of too technical, but Curbed being a part of Vox Media, which I think, at least for kind of design and media people, has just as big or close reputation for like your content management system and kind of how you can structure your stories. And I was really curious how that, how like the, the like technical backend can what you can do with that and how that influences the stories you tell mm-hmm. from structuring it to the page to art direction and art. Does that influence how you think about how to tell these stories? And you're t- like even talking about sending a newsletter and the way you can kind of break this up. How does that, how do you think about how all of that can fit together? Which I imagine is different than a blog or <laughs> a right. magazine.
1: Right. Um, well, I would say the main approach for that is just having a really Amazing photo director mm. who's been with us now for almost three years. Um, and then we recently hired a designer um, to help us with that as well. And we, as far as the, the back end, which is called Chorus, um, it is an incredibly intuitive publishing system. Um that makes it very easy for people to put yeah. content onto the internet. Um and I have seen a lot of systems, like we were on movable type until <laughs> 2016. So oh, wow. um, I know from Clunky, but um it's great, it's very intuitive, it's very easy. Um that being said, it's not a miracle worker. Um <laughs> uh-huh. the, because it has to apply to as many people as possible. Um it is fairly straightforward in its capabilities, I think. Um, so okay. that's why I say like having a designer, having a photo director and people who are, who want to push it, Yeah. who want to push those capabilities um, are really crucial to what we're able to do visually um, on this project that's launching October 24th. We also worked with a very talented engineer from someone from another team. He's okay. the SB Nation um, lead engineer, and um, so he built this sort of dynamic layout for us. That's not generally like possible for people just publishing every day yeah. for Chorus. That being said, um, it, Chorus really like levels up the display for pretty standard stories on the internet. Yeah, um, and it's also just incredibly easy, and nice to use. I mean, even
0: though it's not something that you can do on every story, nor would you want to, does knowing that that's a possibility, to to do these more kind of elaborate, like, elaborate, illustrative pieces, do you think about that when you're kind of...
1: Yes and no. I mean, I am greedy. I want awards, and I realize that (laughs) when it comes to digital, uh, people want to see the bells and whistles. They want to see parallax. They want to see... Interesting swipe features, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so that is certainly a consideration. But for the most part, and in order to make sure that our brand extends across every platform where Curved lives, um, we rely mostly on the visual assets that we commission ourselves. Oh, okay. So making sure that we're working with amazing illustrators. Um, our photo director commissions. Um, right. Like, honestly. I mean, photographers who work for all of the top magazines. Like, we have a really, really great, I mean, similar to hiring great writers, right? Yeah. Um, We make sure that we're working with really good people so that that the asset, the visual assets that we deploy across Curved really do sort of speak for themselves. Um, We, now that we have a designer, uh, we're also working on like branding a lot of our regular series. Um, so that we have our sort of own backlog of like right. art and stuff that we can use. And that makes a big difference because just to have those little touches actually take something that's a fairly standard layout and then makes it really makes it ours. Yeah. Um, but that's that's sort of self-initiated, I would say. Okay. Yeah.
0: This was so fun for me. I I, <laughs> I, I think you're right about kind of what curved is and I, and I am a loyal reader and I find myself on it often uh, and I really enjoy talking to you that f- about all of this so thanks for being on the podcast of course this episode was recorded on October 10th 2018 in New York City our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. we're on Twitter and Instagram at surface podcast you can find us wherever you get your podcasts at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. surface FM thanks for